I had a professor in seminary named Stanley Hauerwas who said that uh, we would do well in ministry, those who are being trained for, for ministry, if we would never marry, bury, or baptize someone off the street. Never marry, bury, or baptize them off, off the street. The idea being, if someone comes to you and they knock on the door in the, your office and they say, hey, we want to get married this weekend, he said, you should say no. You should say no. Uh, if someone comes to you and they knock on the door and they say, hey, my dad just died. I know you don't know them. Can we do the, the, the funeral at your church? You should say no. If a young couple shows up on a Sunday morning and they come up to you in the middle of the service and say, hey, this is our new baby. We need you to baptize her. You should say no. Now, why? Why shouldn't preachers, pastors, marry, bury, or baptize people off the street. Well, for Dr. Harawas, the reason was you can't really do those things if they're not part of your community. Because whenever we do one of those things, we covenant with each other. When we have a baptism, we covenant to help nurture this person in the faith. It's not just about the, the decision that the family makes or the person makes. It's about the whole church. The whole church takes a vow to be present in this person's life in their baptism. The same is true in marriage. It's not just the couple that makes a vow. Everyone who gathers for a wedding makes a promise to uphold those people in, in, their, in their marriage. And the same thing, oddly enough, kind of happens with a funeral. When we gather together to worship God, it's kind of strange to do that for someone if we don't know them at all. So I took that to heart when I was in seminary and when I was in my first church, I, I had a couple come one morning with a brand new baby and they say, they said, we'd, we'd really like you to baptize our baby. And I said, no, not yet is how I changed it. I said, not yet said, I'd like you to keep coming to worship. I would like to see you here regularly so that I, I know that this is something that you all care about, that your daughter will care about, because it won't really do us or your daughter any good to baptize her if we can't be present in her life. And so they came Sunday after Sunday. They came for six weeks in a row. And every Sunday we met together after worship. We, we talked about the scriptures. We prayed together. We talked about their young daughter. And, and it was this remarkable moment as we were sort of growing in faith together and I was connecting them with different people in the church and we had all these grandmotherly types in the church and they started knitting blankets for the young baby girl and started buying her diapers and they just did all this profound work prior to her baptism. I thought, this is it, we're taking it seriously. We're making a commitment and a covenant to this, this baby girl. And so after six weeks, I said to the, to the family, absolutely, it's time to, to baptize your girl. And so I, uh, toward the end of the service, I invited them to come forward. I took the waters of baptism. I prayed for the Holy Spirit, and I baptized her in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And I took her in my arms, and I carried her down the center aisle like I always do, and everyone was, you know, ooing and aahing over this baby. And then after the service, we had got these gifts for the family as a way to say, you know, we're so excited, not just about your daughter being baptized, but that you're part of our faith community now. And they never, ever came back. We called, we wrote letters, we left gifts at their house. I mean, it was like, it was like the seventh grade boyfriend who goes way over the top. I mean, we really, really went a little too far into it. And they never, ever came back. I've thought about that for years. Is that girl baptized? Is she a beloved child of God? Absolutely yes, 100%. And yet I fear how much she has missed in these last eight years not being supported, not being cared for, not being surrounded by a church week in and week out of people who love her for no other reason than because Jesus says that we have to. Our scripture today comes from Luke 2, verses 41 through 52. Now, every year his parents went to Jerusalem for the rite of the festival of the Passover, and when he was 12 years old, 
they went up as usual for the festival. When the festival was ended and they started to return, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but his parents did not know it. Assuming that he was with the group of travelers, they went a day's journey, and then they started to look for him among their relatives and friends, and when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem to search for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions, and all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, child, why have you treated us like this? Look, your father and I have been searching for you in great anxiety. He said to them, why were you searching for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he said to them. And then he went down with them and came to Nazareth. He was obedient to them. His mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in years and in divine and human favor. Would you please pray with me? May the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts, be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I'd like to begin the sermon today with a brief thought experiment. You don't have to go pray with anybody. I'd like you to close your eyes for just a moment, make sure you're in a comfortable posture. And I would like you, in your mind, to imagine the perfect church. So with your eyes closed, comfortable posture, for just a moment, imagine the perfect church. What does it look like? Who's inside of it? What are the things this church does? So just think for a moment about the perfect church. As you open your eyes, if you feel comfortable, share with the gathered people here what your perfect church looks like, who's inside of it, what kind of images or ideas popped in your mind when I said perfect church? What did you think about? Right here, Debbie Reed, she gets 10 points, 10 points. All right, if, 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 uh, if you're looking for a little bit more beyond Raleigh Court United Methodist Church, what do you see when you think of the perfect church? Diversity. Diversity from Jean upstairs. What'd you say? Water slide. Water slide, yeah. Talk about fun baptism right there. I asked the youth when I first got here if they could change one thing about the church. Some of you might remember this. One of them looked at me and she said, oh, you know what we need? We need a jacuzzi, a hot tub right outside the gathering entrance. I said, that might be some incentive for baptism. Any, any other thoughts, ideas about the perfect church? Caring. Caring. Janice. When I picture the perfect church, its architect is Frank Lloyd Wright. It's mid-century modern has a lot of natural light, and it's in the perfect location. It's got a lot of uh, uh, property in the woods, so you can see the change of the seasons outside the windows. And because it's Frank Lloyd Wright, the sanctuary is built on top of a river. And right in the center of the church, there is this trap door that when it's time for baptism, we can open up the doors, and the river is right here. And I can take an adult or a child, and right here in the center of church with living water, we can baptize them. Now, on Sundays, we have a giant pipe organ 
And because Deborah LeBrun is a perfect organist, she's the organist that we have on Sunday. And every once in a while, we, we, we play the kind of the traditional hymns, but sometimes we get, we get a contemporary band led by Christy Vernon, and they take the old hymns, but they put a new spin on them. And then once a month, we take secular songs that are actually really like Christian songs. You know those songs that you hear on the radio, and you're like, this isn't a Christian artist, but it sounds like they're singing about God. We sing those songs in church. For me, that means people like Sufjan Stevens and Chris Teeley and the Punch Brothers and all these bands that some of you have probably never heard of before. Now, what does the church look like? It's, it's multicultural. It's filled to the brim on Sunday. Every week, we have to expand the back part of the sanctuary because we have more and more people showing up. On the other side of the altar, there is an industrial-sized kitchen because we have volunteers every week who cook. Every evening, there is a free meal that anyone in the community can come have. And then on the other side of the kitchen is a classroom because we also deeply care about education. Any child from the community can come, and we have people who volunteer their time just to help them learn to read and to write and to do arithmetic. There's also a prayer chapel that's also connected to the water. So you can hear the water running when you're in the prayer chapel. And every day there's a group that starts their day in prayer. Always somebody there in prayer. We also have a, uh, a fleet of these um, trailers out in the parking lot that are for uh, mission response. So every time there's a natural disaster or anyone needs any help, we have a team that can go take one of those trailers, drive to where it's needed, and they can do the good work to help people when they need it. We also have a team of evangelists who go out in the community and they're out there not trying to convince anyone of everything, but trying to tell them what the good news of Jesus Christ is. Not that I've ever thought about it before. <laughs> what troubles me about the perfect church is how easy it is to close our eyes, unless you're Debbie Reed, close your eyes to imagine the perfect church and then you open your eyes and you're stuck with all the people here. I mean, the perfect church. It's so easy to picture something perfect in our minds because that's what life has conditioned us to do. In every part of our life, we can curate it to benefit our own tastes, our own leanings, our own hopes, our own dreams. There was a time where most of the music we listened to was chosen for us. It's called the radio. Have you ever heard of it before? You got in your car, and you didn't get to choose what you listened to because someone else picked it for you. Now, you could go buy a record. You could go buy an eight-track. You could go buy these different types of things, and you could listen to your music. But for most of the day, you had to listen to what somebody else chose. Now there's a thing called Spotify. And you can pick any song you want to listen to at any point of any day. It's not just that. If we disagree with someone on, let's say, Facebook, we can click a button, we can unfollow them, and we never have to hear from them ever again. That might, in fact, be a gift from the Lord above. If we're watching a movie, and within 10 minutes, if we're bored, we can push a button and we can go watch another movie. If we're hungry for a particular meal, we can get out our phones, and with a couple presses of a button, that meal can be delivered to our house, regardless of what we might have in our pantry. We are consumers who live in a consumable world. We choose exactly what we want. We take exactly what we want. We move on with unlimited choices and unlimited speed. And of course, we also bring this to the church as well. That's why there's every flavor of Christian denominationalism right outside those doors on Grandin Road. You can experience every flavor of the church and you don't even have to walk too far to do it. If you encounter a church that doesn't give you exactly what you want, that's okay. There's always another one that you can try. Did you know there are more United Methodist churches per zip code in the state of Virginia than there are post offices? Just think about that for a moment. 
more United Methodist churches per zip code in the state of Virginia than there are post offices. So the only problem with the fact that you can get any church you want is sometimes what we want is not what we need. So an example, we are blessed here at this church to have visitors nearly every single Sunday. Someone who has never stepped foot in our church, we almost have someone every single Sunday. It's a remarkable thing to have people come who have never been to this church before. And every once in a while, those people, they come back week after week, and after a while, I'll reach out to them and I'll say, hey, do you want to get a cup of coffee? Do you want to sit down and talk about the church? On and on and on. And one of my favorite things to do when I have that conversation after someone's been there for a while is I ask, where were you going to church before? Every once in a while, you get someone who comes who's never been to a church before, but that's pretty rare. Most of the time when somebody comes, they've left a church and they're exploring new churches. Now, that's a fascinating thing. Because I always say, why? Why did you leave your last church? And the answer is almost always something very specific. There was a too political sermon one day. Or there was an unfortunate song choice on a Sunday morning. Or someone, uh, this recent stewardship campaign left a sour taste in their mouth. And then they say goodbye. And I'll say to someone, well, how long were you going to that church? And someone will say, 20 years, 15 years, 5 years, 50 years. And you're willing to throw it all away because you heard one person say one thing from the pulpit one Sunday? Now, I shouldn't be complaining. I'll take all the people we can get at Raleigh Court United Methodist Church. But it is a bit strange that we will throw away decades of a relationship or relationships with people because something doesn't fit exactly what we want. Charles Spurgeon, the 19th century preacher, he said, if I had never joined a church until I found one that was perfect, I never would have joined one at all. And then he said, and the moment that I did join it, if I had found a perfect church, I should have spoiled it, for it would not have been a perfect church after I became a member of it. Still, imperfect as it is, the church is the dearest place on earth to us. The church is the strange place where we discover the comforting gospel of Jesus Christ that leads us to live uncomfortable lives for him. It's uncomfortable because living for Jesus means living for the people in the pews next to you. When someone joins a United Methodist Church, they vow to be there with the church in their prayers, their presence, their gifts, their service, their witness. To support the church by presence is simply that, is being present in the things that happen. Part of our discipleship is a willingness to be present for God and one another. Here, we gather week after week to remember the stories of God, to be remembered into the body of Christ. We break bread with each other in worship. We share signs of Christ's peace. We, we even share food at something like the garden. It's a recognition that our life, our Christian life, is something that we share with each other. We show up for Sunday school classes and Bible studies. We have programs. We have children's ministries. We have adult ministries. We have missional ministries. We have all these things because we believe that being present is at the heart of what it means to follow Jesus. If you've ever read the Gospels, they're all different. They have some similar stories, but they're all very different. Luke has all the best stories. Now, Mark is short and brief. Matthew is very theological. John is just downright weird. But Luke, Luke's got all the best stories. And this story of Jesus at the temple, it's so it's just really so good. It's got drama and intrigue and familial strife, youthful rebellion. And when we read this story, typically, we read it on like a youth Sunday. And we talk about how Jesus was 12 years old and how he taught all the elders. It's just kind of an amazing story. You know, it's easy to take something like that and say, our youth are not the future of the church. They're the church right now. 
which is true, by the way. And then we, we tell a story about a youth in the church for like three and a half minutes about how they get the gospel better than we do. And there, there's something good in that. Jesus does say that if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, you have to be like a child. And yet, I fear if that's the only part of this story we elevate, we miss something that's even more important. And that's the fact that this is a story about horrible parenting. This is a story about horrible parenting. Listen to it again. They travel all the way to Jerusalem for Passover. It's a six days journey from Nazareth by foot. And then when they're done, Mary and Joseph, they didn't know that they left Jesus behind. How does that happen? I mean, it's one thing if you lose track of your child in the grocery store, you have a panic attack for two and a half minutes while you can't find them. But to leave a child in a foreign city, how do you do that? And that would be bad enough. But then it says, they were a whole day away when they realized it. They had to travel all the way back, and then it took them three days to find Jesus. Three days. He's in the temple, he's teaching, and his parents are astonished. Scripture says that Mary said, child, why have you treated us this way? Your father and I have been searching for you in great anxiety. That's the Bible's version of, boy, you are in deep trouble. You are grounded from now until eternity. How does Jesus respond? Why were you searching for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Must is a strong word, a very strong word. In life, all of our musts and shoulds, they don't muster up to much in the kingdom of God. But the fact that Jesus says he must be in the father's house is very notable. It is good and right to be in the house of the Lord. Honor and keep the Sabbath, I mean, that's one of the Ten Commandments. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord, the psalmist writes. To be in the house of God for Jesus is as necessary as it is to breathe. And yet, again, there's still more details in the story that to me just leave me staggering. This story is so wild. The Holy Family, they travel to Jerusalem. Why? For Passover. 21 years later, Jesus will travel back to this same city for Passover once again. They go as a family to celebrate Passover. In 21 years, Jesus will enter the city with his friends and he will take bread and he will take cup. He will become the Passover lamb for them, the exodus for the rest of us. Mary and Joseph, they abandon Jesus in the city. Much like the aforementioned disciples will abandon Jesus to the cross the day after Passover, just like his family abandoned him the day after Passover. It will take Mary and Joseph three days to find Jesus. Three days Jesus sits in the tomb before the resurrection. Have you ever noticed that before? Notably, the family, they have this confrontation in the temple. Scripture says Jesus returned home and was obedient to his parents so much so that Mary treasured it in her heart. It's another way of saying that Jesus forgave his parents for what they did much like Jesus returns to his abandoning and denying disciples the day after Easter. A crucial eccentricity of the Christian faith is the claim that salvation does not come to us by natural inclination, by birthright, by earning or deserving. Salvation is a gift from God. And because it is a gift, it can only be received on God's terms, not ours. And the church is the witness to the gift of salvation. It reminds us over and over again of the great gift that we've been given, even though we don't deserve it at all. That we deserve absolutely nothing. Now, that's a hard truth to swallow. We deserve nothing, but it's true. 
We all do things we shouldn't do. We all avoid doing things we know we should. We are imperfect people. Now, we might not be the type of people that forget our children for three days in a foreign city, but we share a lot more with Mary and Joseph than we often let on. What's more, even though we fail to be an obedient church, even though we don't regularly love God with our whole hearts, minds, and strength, even though we don't often love our neighbors as ourselves, God offers us grace anyway. Which means the perfect church is actually an imperfect one that constantly reminds us of our imperfections and the great good news that someone has come to help us, that Jesus has come to help us. Because without the church, how could we ever know of God's grace, how it's mediated to us? How could we ever discover that we're caught up in God's story? How could we receive the sacraments? We need each other. That's one of those things we don't think about often, but you can't baptize yourself. You can't give communion to yourself. It has to be done and given to you. Someone else has to give you that gift. All of us need the church to tell us again and again, the world will only ever see you by your failures. Always. But in the kingdom of God, you are only who God says that you are. Beloved. We need the church because it holds much of our lives together when everything else feels like it's falling apart. Rich Mullins, the uh, contemporary Christian music artist once said that nobody goes to church because they're perfect. If you've got it all together, you don't need to go to church. You can go jogging with all the other perfect people on Sunday morning. Do you know how many people jog down Grandin Road on Sunday morning? You can go jogging with all the other perfect people on Sunday because every time we go to church, we're confessing again to ourselves, our families, to the person in the pew next to us, the person we see while we're driving, that we don't have it all together. That we need direction, we need accountability, above all, we need help. We need help. The reason for being present in church is the strange truth that this is kind of the only community that is consciously formed, criticized, and sustained by truth. By truth. Stanley Hawass, the professor I talked about earlier, the one who said you can't marry, bury, or baptize anyone off the street, he said the most important thing we can ever do as Christians, more than anything else, is be people of truth who are willing to tell the truth, to receive the truth. I also love the church because it's kind of the last vestige of a place where we actually are happy to get together with people who aren't like us. Intergenerational friendship doesn't really happen anymore except in the church. It's a strange thing to be part of the church. Sometimes you get invited to make coffee. It's the difference that makes all the difference in the world. I often wonder why I kept going to the church. I'm 34 years old. I'm one of the, uh, the so-called unicorns in the church, a millennial who likes to go to church on Sundays. And I wonder, why? Why have I kept going to church all these years? Now, of course, at first, I went as a child because my parents brought me to church. You can't leave a, a child at home alone, you know, despite what Mary and Joseph might have done. My parents brought me to church on Sunday mornings. But then when I was a, a teenager, about that time that a lot of people start to vacillate about their faith, I started to run the sound system, so I had to go to church on Sundays. So I did it through high school, and then I went to college, and then I heard about this church that needed a drummer, so I started playing the drums on Sunday morning, so I had to go to church, and then it just kept happening, and I, I think back in my life, there's all these excuses I had for going to church, but then I realized, why? Why did I keep going to church all these years? Jesus. See, Jesus churched me. The church is how God dealt with me. 
The church is how God made me into who I am, and not just as a pastor, but as a human being. I am who I am in so many ways because of the church, because of people like Keister Walker. Have you ever met a person whose name is Keister? I have. Keister Walker was my favorite person at church when I was growing up. He was older than dirt. He could barely hear anything. And every Sunday, he asked me how I was doing. If I missed one Sunday, he would call my parents and ask if I was okay. Keister Walker. It's a huge difference that that makes when you're a young person. That someone outside your family cares enough about you to call. Jesus churched me through sermons, sacraments, friends, and even foes. I am who I am because of the church. God, God is in the business of remembering us. Like I've said, like puzzle pieces. God puts us together. And yet, have you ever spent a rainy day working on a puzzle for hours and hours and hours only to get to the very end and you're missing two pieces? Is there anything more infuriating in this life than nearly finishing a puzzle, but you can't because one or two are missing? We are not who we are as the church unless we're together. If we're missing, if we're not here, we can't be who we are. The picture is incomplete. Your presence here, it makes the church the church. Your presence here makes me a better Christian. I hope and pray that your presence here has made you a better Christian because of people who are in these pews next to you because of the way God speaks to you through songs and silence and even sermon and sacrament. When we are present before God's presence, we live God's future in our present, which actually makes the biggest difference in the world. So you might not have known this, but you already attend a perfect church. It's perfect because God does God's best work with imperfect people like us. So I offer this to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever. Amen. I did not want to include this in the sermon uh, because it feels a little less faithful, but if you're still at all concerned about whether being present in church is actually meaningful in any way, a giant research paper came out last year that said, if you are regularly present in worship, you will live longer than people who don't. I posted that online last year when it came out, and I said, I can't wait for the pews to be full on Sunday morning. If that's not enough, I don't know what is. But of course, that's not enough. Who wants to live a long life if you don't have people to live it with? On Friday, I drove to Danville, Virginia, to bury Ed Smith. Ed Smith was 100 years old, longtime member of our church. And I was struck as I was preparing for his burial service. His funeral service is going to be here on Tuesday, 1 o'clock. But for his burial service at the cemetery, I was struck by 100 years. Can you imagine how many things changed since 1922 that Ed Smith got to see? Can you imagine at all what the world looked like when he was born to what it looks like now? And yet, the words that I shared at his grave, the words that I will share during his service on Tuesday, are 2,000 years old. They have endured, the presence of God has endured all the changes that have happened in the world. It's a strange and wondrous thing to be part of a church, but it has made my life all the better. I hope it has for you too.